Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 14 of Pith and Moment, a podcast for all things Shakespeare. My name's Kyle Downing. I'm a Shakespeare coach in New York City, and I am joined by fellow Shakespeare geek, my co-host, Abby Wild. What's up? Not much. Not much. What is up with you? Just uh, just enjoying this little breakfast sandwich I made before the podcast. Yes. Yeah. Mm. If you hear chewing sounds, I'm sorry. If you hear whimpering hunger pangs and slavering envy, just I, I apologize for nothing. Awesome. Okay. So, about Shakespeare, that guy that... You know, died 400 years ago and last week. Can I week. just say, I I still can't get over how odd it is that we celebrated his death day. It just seems, it seems like a weird thing to celebrate. Like we should be parading through the streets singing, ding dong, the bard is dead. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's just another reason for people to market their Shakespeare, you know? Which, so long ago. I mean, not that I need extra excuses to get <laughs> together a whole group of people to talk about Shakespeare. There was a... um. Sorry, I missed this, but there was, in Midtown Manhattan at Bryant Park, there was a New Orleans jazz funeral for Shakespeare. They paraded through the streets playing playing New Orleans-style jazz music for him. And I think that that's something we should do every year. Why do we wait 400 years for that one? There are many, many different ways to celebrate the greatness of the bard. So, today, I wanted to start off with the rhetorical device of the day to switch things up a little bit. Um, and today's rhetorical device is called epizuxis. Now, the definition of epizuxis is when a word or phrase is repeated multiple times in succession in order to emphasize or illustrate a point. For example, one of the more famous ones being tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Macbeth. Mm -hmm. That is a combination of epizuxis and polysyndeton, as some of the listeners know from previous podcasts. Anyway... Um, I wanted to talk about this one because it's it's much more common in Shakespeare's plays than it is in modern day plays. I find like there, there's a bunch here I have pulled up: um, Cassio, Reputation, Reputation, Reputation. Ford from the Merry Wives of Windsor has two in a row. He says five, 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 cuckold, cuckold, cuckold. And uh, Autolycus in Winter's Tale says pluck, put off these rags, and then death, death. So what does it mean for a character when a character repeats a word or phrase multiple times in a row? And one more that you had mentioned earlier that's an example of a phrase is Hamlet saying, Accept my life. Accept my life. Accept my life. Or another one that I can't believe didn't occur to me earlier is Lear's, one of Lear's last lines. Never, 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 never. There you go. Now, it's, it's my understanding then from the brief, all too brief knowledge I have of this rhetorical device is that it can do different things depending on the circumstances. Lear's, uh, Lear's evidence is commonly cited as Shakespeare breaking the meter to make a point um, because that line is entirely trochaic as opposed to iambic, which is Shakespeare's standard rhythm that mirrors sure. the human heartbeat. Lear breaking his rhythm so grandly at the very end of his life on stage is often interpreted to mean that he is, in fact, going through a heart attack. He dies mere lines later. Spoiler alert. <laughs> um, but that surely metrical, sh surely uh, poetry reasons aren't the only reasons to repeat a word. What do you think? It's, it's interesting to think about why somebody might have to repeat a word that they just said. I mean, obviously there's, as an actor, you have to have a behavioral difference 
in the word the second and the third and maybe the fourth time, however many times the word appears. Um, but the definition says for emphasis. I don't think that it need be for emphasis because, no. I mean, it depends on the effect you're trying to have on the other person on stage or if you're alone, the audience. Uh, for instance, I saw this wonderful production in L.A., the uh, Los Angeles Women's Shakespeare that was directed by and starred Lisa Wolpe, where when Hamlet says words the first time, Polonius is staring at him blankly. So he opens the books, holds it in his face and goes, words, words. See, it's a... Uh, the the sense of the line changes mid repetition. Mm -hmm. Well, in this this Ford monologue, um, I saw a classmate once do a production or a, a monologue from Mary Rides of Windsor, and it was this speech, right? And the because it's comedy in the rule of threes, like the first one was like cuckold, that's what I am, and then the second one was cuckold, I'm victorious, I figured it out, and then the third one was like sort of a pang and a realization like, oh, cuckold. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I guess like anything else, this this could have a variety of different applications, you know, sure. dozens of different ways you could go about it, but the important thing is that this thing is cool and it has a word to describe it. And next time you see it, you can turn to your friends and say, that, my friend, is Epizuxus, and you will surely be cooler than they. Yes. And we're all about being cooler than somebody else on this podcast. Here on Pith and Moment, we are at the zenith of cool. Yes. So, um, the real topic of today's podcast is prophecies and fate and any other word we want to throw in there? Hubris. Sure. Hubris. Mm -hmm. um, Abby and I thought it would be super fascinating to examine uh, Macbeth, Julius Caesar, and Richard III um, through the lens of prophecy and sort of figure out, does Shakespeare have some continuous themes throughout these three plays? Does he apply it differently across the three plays? And why don't you tell me a little bit about what you came up with? Well, when I originally, when we were originally discussing this theme, um, I had, I had a uh, a, a rash generalization that, as we all know, always tends to be true. My rash generalization was that Shakespeare often, if not always, has tragic heroes fail themselves when they uh, let prophecy or fate go unheeded. Um, which, after some closer analysis of the heroes who I thought best exemplified that, turned out to be false. Uh, as, as you'll see as we discuss, what all these characters have in common is their great hubris, their great assurance of their personal security, of getting things right. Mm. Um, and in that, through that lens, they do bump up against fate in, in very specific and distinct ways. Um, this interests me because it's something that Shakespeare took from the classics. It's, our, I think, uh, every... English major slash theater majors major example of tragic of, of dramatic hubris in play would be Oedipus Rex. Shakespeare mirrors that and distorts it and plays it out through many of his tragedies. I picked the three with which I am the most conversant, but also with which which I think best exemplify Shakespeare's exploration of this concept. Cool. So let's um let's dive right in with Macbeth. Yeah. Yeah. What do we know? about these themes as they apply to this play. 
for those of you who are not intimately familiar with Macbeth, Macbeth is a Scottish soldier who is walking through the woods one day when he happens upon three witches. One of them greets him by his current title, Thane of Cawdor, uh, excuse me, Thane of Gloms. Mm -hmm. The next greets him by a title he does not hold, Thane of Cawdor, and the next greets him as the king that will be. And he's sitting there thinking, well, that's odd. I'm not the Thane of Cawdor, and I'm not going to be the king. I'm not in line, as far as I can see. When that moment, another soldier comes along, tells him that the current Thane of Cawdor has been executed, and that he has now been given that title. So, of course, he thinks, well, gee, if that came true, then, then the kingliness is shortly to come. Mm -hmm. um, he tells his wife. His wife says, yes, I agree, and therefore we should murder the current king. And that clearly ends well for all concerned. Uh, you know, the interesting part about Macbeth is that like, this is the initial prophecy, mm -hmm. but once Macbeth's, um, once this prophecy's been fulfilled, Macbeth actively seeks out the next prophecy. He, he says, does. I will to the weird sisters, and he goes and asks them what's going to happen next, and then they give him a whole slew of new information. And you know, there's a line early on in the play from uh, Banquo that says, Oftentimes to win us to our harm, the instruments of darkness tell us truths, win mm. us with honest trifles to betray us in deepest consequence. Which, right there in those four lines, is kind of the dramatic model of the play. Sure, yeah. Shakespeare was nothing if not fond of foreshadowing. Mm -hmm. um, what Macbeth does... what. What I had remembered of Macbeth is that Macbeth is cavalier about fate. Uh, we remember Macbeth after the second round of prophecies that say that he will be king until Burnham Wood marches to Dunsinane and that he cannot be harmed by anyone of woman born and that he should be wary of Macduff. What we remember is Macbeth stomping around his castle saying, well, I'm fine. I can't be killed by any man of woman born and who's not born of woman and trees can't move and... I've slaughtered all of Macduff's family. Macduff is still out there, but surely that won't bother me in the future. But what we actually find on closer reading is that he's not cavalier about fate. He believes in it wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. He believes that he's protected by it. Um, he is... He, his his uh, brand of hubris is one that believes, that believes in divine right, almost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But... Which is a tricky yeah. thing for Shakespeare to be writing about, as it's. I think it might be his first Jacobean play. Um, Banquo, who's a character in Macbeth, is an ancestor of King James, mm. and the. I did not know that. Oh yeah, so he wrote the play. So here's what's interesting: he wrote the play to honor King James. But one of the stories of the origin of the Macbeth curse—you're not supposed to say Macbeth on stage, or else bad luck will happen. Uh, one of the origins... And she says one of, because we don't really know where this superstition came from, but one of the potential stories... Precisely. Yes. Is that he wrote this play... He, he wrote this play to uh, please King James, because it, it contained the story of his ancestor, hence that prophecy of Banquo being the father of a line of many kings to mm -hmm. come. Uh, and also it had witches, and King James, as we know from his edition of the Bible, was very, very against witches existing. Um, it was, in fact, I think the overuse of the witches that caused King James to ban it from the stage. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So what was in, what's interesting about Shakespeare challenging divine right almost is that it, uh, it, it it's 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 a bit of a stick it's a bit of a stick to the current monarch. Mm-hmm. Um, and so are the witches, in fact. You know, yes. the, the presence of the witches. Because he's almost insinuating that uh, King James's lineage was handed to him by demonic forces. We're gonna edit a it depends on your stance on the witches. Mm -hmm. Are they demons? Are they fates? Mm -hmm. 
are they are they chicks with Ouija boards? Who knows? I mean, it depends on the production, I guess. It you know? does. So then how does this compare to Julius Caesar in which the prophecy is not embraced and in which the prophecy is, is actually, I believe, ridiculed, right? Oh, absolutely. Julius Caesar is, in fact, the one that's most in standing with what I thought I would find in all of these plays. In Julius Caesar... Uh, a soothsayer comes to Caesar and tells him to beware the Ides of March, which we later find, find out is the next day. Caesar looks at the soothsayer and, and uh, sends him on his way. He disregards him completely. And the moment Caesar clears the stage, his two friends, Brutus and Cassius, come forth and begin plotting his downfall. Um, I'm simplifying this greatly for time's sake. It's a bit more complex than that. After the soothsayer scene, we have another one where Caesar wakes up in the middle of the night, his wife having had a bad dream about mm. his imminent demise, and he disregards that. And then finally, a servant comes in from his personal team of augurers, which we often forget about. In this play, Caesar has a personal staff of soothsayers whose job is to read omens and tell him what to do. And they tell him, don't go to the capital. So he's got, beware the Ides of March. He's got Calpurnia's dream that he was a fountain spewing blood in which all Romans bathed their hands. Mm -hmm. And he has a team of augurers slaying an animal and being unable to find the heart within it and saying, nope, not a good day to leave your house. And he does. And then, correct me if I'm wrong, there's, there is another prophecy somewhere later in the play that, that basically dooms Brutus. Oh, correct? there is. Yes. Yes. Well, it's... Does it... Doom Brutus or does it doom Cassius? I think that it dooms Cassius and Brutus's fault is that he is too trusting in Cassius. Sure. So what what is the text of this again? Do you remember anything about it? There are actually two such evidences. First, there is, uh, immediately after the Brutus and Cassius plotting scene, there's the night before. When we are told that uh, it is a dark and terrible night, there is a tempest dropping fire, there's a lion wandering around in the streets, there is a servant whose hand bursts to flame. Immediately after the plotting scene, we find a scene of two of the conspirators meeting in the middle of the night. There is a tempest dropping fire. A lion has born, uh, has born a cub in the streets. A servant's hand has burst into flame without hurting him at all. There's, uh, I think there's a, a heap of groaning women screaming and moaning. All of these quote-unquote natural portents that show that the world is out of order. And Cassius, the key conspirator, the foremost conspirator, interprets this as meaning that the world is out of joint because Caesar lives, which will come back, which will be referred to later after Cassius's death when his epigraph is, uh, oh, Cassius, you have misconstrued everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Later, later on, after, uh, after the murder of Caesar, after the civil war has begun, Cassius has a famous speech that begins, it is my birthday. And in the midst of this speech, he confides in his servant that he believes the omens have turned against them because up until that day, they had been followed by these two eagles, glorious, regal, wonderful beasts. And then that morning, the eagles disappeared and now all that fills the air are birds of prey, are, 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 uh, are scavengers of corpses, of battlefields, ravens and crows and vultures. Mm. So it's, it's a play that is filled with both natural and human omens that go time and time again misconstrued and disregarded yeah and you know what's interesting it's it's fascinating that you mentioned the omens because i mean in macbeth we don't see any omens really that aren't 
flat out stated in the prophecies, right? But we do. Ah, It's my favorite speech in this entire play, I think. Uh, Right after the porter scene, as Macduff has arrived in the middle of the night, it's after the porter scene, which is just after Duncan has been murdered, middle of the night, Macbeth's castle. Macduff and and, uh, Ross, I believe, come to the door, knock on the door. Macduff goes to wake the king. So Macduff has just left. Ross and Macbeth are standing there awkwardly because Macbeth knows what's about to happen and Ross doesn't. And Ross starts telling him that it's been a weird night, that the, uh, that, that the heavens are angry. In fact, yeah. silence while I find it. Lennox, in fact, not Ross, has a speech that goes, the night has been unruly. Where we lay, our chimneys were blown down, and as they say, lamentings heard in the air, strange screams of death, and prophesying with accents terrible of dire combustion and confused events, new hatched to the woeful time, the obscure bird clamored the livelong night. Some say the earth was feverous and did shake. To yeah, which Macbeth no. replies, "'Twas a rough night." <laughs> so then, how do we tie Richard III in with all of this? Are there omens in Richard III as well, or is it more directly about the prophecies here? Richard III is neither about natural omens, nor is it about the prophecies of those who are in touch with the future. It is about the future that we make for ourselves. Hmm begins and ends with curses. And every curse that is spoken in Richard III comes true. And there are a lot of them. We have Margaret's curses when she comes into the court. We have the curses of, uh, uh, we, we have the curses of the Duchess of York. We have the curses of Queen Elizabeth. But most importantly, we have the curses of Richard himself. His first is not so much a curse as a plan. He says, because I uh, and therefore, since I cannot play a lover, I am determined to prove a villain, which he does handily. But his last is a bet that he makes with Elizabeth, a cross my heart and hope to die, in which he says, as I intend to prosper and repent, so thrive I in my dangerous affairs of hostile arms. Myself, myself confound, heaven and fortune bar me happy hours, day yield me not thy light nor night thy rest, be opposite all planets of good luck to my proceeding, if, with my dear heart's love, I tender not thy beauteous princely daughter. In other words, may I be struck dead if I don't mean the best of all wonderful things to your daughter. He doesn't, so he is. Now, Lady Anne also has a curse. Uh, in the very beginning of the play, right? Uh, Act 1, scene 2, I believe it is, where she's talking to Richard. Um, Like, if ever he have a child, like, let it be deformed or something. Oh, yeah, well spotted. She says, and I quote, uh, More direful hap betide that hated wretch that makes us wretched by the death of thee than I can wish to wolves, to spiders, toads, or any creeping venomed thing that lives. Which, sidebar... There, I don't believe there's a single character in Shakespeare who is more frequently compared to uh, venomous scavenging creatures than <laughs> Richard III is. If ever he have child abortive be it, prodigious and untimely brought to light, whose ugly and unnatural aspect may fright the hopeful mother at the view and that be heir to his unhappiness. And most importantly, my favorite part of this whole passage, if ever he have wife, let her be made more miserable by the death of him than I am made by my young lord and thee. And she later becomes that wife. Oh, that's so good. Damn, Shakespeare. No. Ah, you did a good job there. And later we find out that she cannot sleep, that she's having bad dreams. She, again, fulfills her own ill-speaking. So then, in Julius Caesar, we have prophecies, right? Mark Antony specifically, for example, says, Over these wounds now do I prophesy. In Richard III, it's curses, right? Cursed be the hand that made these awful holes, or whatever she says. Um, 
And then in Macbeth, there are like either predictions or foretellings or what, what do we call the witches? Like, I don't know what we would call the witches, to be quite honest. I don't know that it's quite that, uh, that it's quite that categorizable. If Julius Caesar is a tragedy of those misconstruing and disregarding their omens, and if Richard III is a tragedy of those who curse themselves and curse each other, then Macbeth is a tragedy of the ambitious adherence to what we best want to believe about ourselves. There's a point that I wanted to raise when we talked about Julius Caesar that I completely forgot about, but that I love, which is uh, one of the most, the one of, if not the most famous lines in this play is, men at some time are masters of our fates. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, stars but, but in, in ourselves that yeah. we are underlings. And the rest of the play seems to go out to examine and I think disprove the idea that the fault is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Mm -hmm. Because it's all about prophecies basically coming true. It is. It is about prophecies being true. But then I guess the question you need to ask is, is the fault in the stars or is the fault in those who read the stars? You know, the one thing I noticed that is contiguous through all three of these plays is that if fate says something about you, you die. <laughs> like, that. that's it though, right? Like, that's pretty much it. It doesn't bring anything good. Like, these are all... I mean, maybe we call them prophecies or, or fatal messages or whatever, but they are all curses, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, there's nobody to whom fate speaks for whom things turn out well. Nobody, I, 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 but well, I mean, you raised an interesting point when you said Macbeth goes back to speak to the witches again. Mm -hmm. The big question about Macbeth is, uh, would he have become king if he hadn't murdered the king? Would those things have come true if he had taken no action? And would he have been cursed if he'd not gone back to the witches to find out? That's true, because, I mean, that is a little interesting, like, wrinkle in my theory, is that the first time he gets this this message, everything comes true, and it's all good things. Mm -hmm. But then he goes back to the witches, and then they tell him bad things that come true. He's punished for seeking knowledge about the future. And in fact, mm. he's told two or three times in that second prophecy scene, seek to know no more. He's, he's warned against it. Um, his wife warns him against it. The witches warn him against it. He, you could make an argument that, he, that the whole play is designed as a punishment for those who try to look into knowledge they're not supposed to have. Well, and also, as um, my professor Jack Young at the University of Houston used to say, there was a message in many, many of Shakespeare's plays, it's including these three, which is that if you kill a king, you die. Or Absolutely. if you kill Julius Caesar, who is, you know, the, the highest level of power in Rome at the time. Yes, there's a great book about that called The Elizabethan World Picture by E.M.W. Tilliard, who posited that the Elizabethan worldview was such that all things had a place in the great chain of being. And in the great chain of being, uh, every spot was ordained. It goes hand in hand with divine right. So when you usurp a king... Not only are you going against God, but you are upsetting the order of okay, all yeah. things. Mm -hmm. And that's why in these plays we have um, tempest dropping fires in Julius Caesar, and we have horses eating themselves in Macbeth, and we have uh, spirits and ghosts coming from the dead in Richard III. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because it is, it, it, it is an affront to the natural order. So I guess what we've learned about fate and prophecy in Shakespeare is that he writes it to foreshadow bad things and uh, almost as punishments 
sometimes for those who either seek help from the future or seek to rise above their station. But I'm curious, can you think of a single play in which uh, in which an angelic or, or, or fatal messenger or an omen comes to light that benefits the receiver? I cannot, as of now. I'm sure perhaps some of our listeners will write in. That would be nice. With answers, if you can think of any. But especially being that these are the big three plays that mm-hmm. revolve around prophecy and everything ends up poorly for those who are prophesied around, especially the title characters, right? <laughs> Macbeth, Julius Caesar, and Richard III. In general, don't be a title character in a Shakespeare play if you yeah. can avoid it. It does not work out well. Nope. Nobody wants to be a title character. Oh my gosh. Like, I'm looking at all these plays in front of us right now. Hamlet, Othello, Romeo, and Juliet, <laughs> King Lear. Like, they all die. They do. So, that's they, great. They do. The comedies, in fact, I think, like, the, the comedies almost entirely have no names in the title. The, yeah. the Two Gentlemen of Verona, Twelfth Night, The Tempest, As You Like It, Midsummer's Night, Midsummer Night's Dream. I nearly did that thing. Um, <laughs> that thing that I hate. Abby is referencing, I hate it when people say Midsummer's Night Dream, because it's, it's all too common Rightly. in our language. We should hate hate it when people say that, and we should... We should ostracize those people from our company. They are not worthy to speak of Shakespeare. I said it. So we're getting a little bit off track, and I'm going to veer us back in the direction of the outline I had planned for today. Uh, And the next thing I wanted to take a look at was something called Shakespearean Text Database. And for those of you who have listened to the podcast before, this is a segment where I look up various things through uh, open source Shakespeare which is a wonderful resource that you can use to search Shakespeare's plays b- via the text, mm-hmm. right? You, you can you can filter by character, by play, by date. It's just a wonderful search engine for all of the text in Shakespeare. And today, I wanted to find out who are the most romantically minded characters in Shakespeare, right? And in order to do this, I took three words that I thought were the most common romantic words, and I searched them by character. And these words were love, beauty, and kiss. Now, you, you know, many of you out there may have your own definition of whatever words you think are the most romantic, but these are mine, right? And therefore, my rules go because this is my game. And it's as simple as that. And so what I did was I found, I searched these particular words took the total of number of times that these words are said by this character, mm-hmm. right? So the number of times that any of the young lovers, male young lovers, because I just felt like doing male today. Don't know why. Wow. Um, wow. I already owe Abby an apology. But <laughs> we'll do female something next week. Anyway, so, for example, the number of times Romeo says love, kiss, and beauty. And... What I did after that was I searched all lines for Romeo, copy and pasted all of his text into a Word document, and used the word count function to see how many words he says in total. Wow. And then I divided the number of instances of the love words mm-hmm. by the total words and multiplied it by a thousand to get that character's romance rating, which statistically the romance rating is number of love words per thousand words spoken. Wow. Right? 
So this is not total number of times these characters say the romance words. These, this is the amount of times a character uses a romance word in relation to the rest of their text. How often a character says love, kiss, or beauty. Instance of romance per thousand words. Yes. Okay. Instance of romantic word per thousand words. Sure. Yep. So I would like you to play Family Feud or oh. Shakespearean Feud and right. see if you can guess the, let's say, let's go with the top five on this list. All right. Well, um, I've got to say Romeo because I consider Romeo to be the character who is, I think, the most the most classically concerned with love. A, just the way we refer to that play, but B, all of his time on stage, almost every word out of his mouth is in uh, is in reference to Juliet or before Juliet Rosaline. Uh, so Romeo is one of my five. All right. Romeo uh, comes in at number four. Really? Yeah. Number four. Yeah. All right. Yep, there are three characters that are more romantically minded than Romeo. Interesting. Oh, you, ne next week I want next week I want to do this with men and women because I'm really curious to see if 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 the if the women make it. You know what? That would be men. fun. Yeah. Because I feel like Helena would be Helena Midsummer Night's Dream. Helena would be sure. way up there. Yep. Okay. Romeo's number four. And these are all what we would consider to be young male lovers. Okay. Um, young male lovers that I would love to play. I mean. <laughs> Some of which I have already. Valentine, two gentlemen of Verona. Valentine comes in at number five on the list. No, wow, scraping yeah. in there. That's right. Um, oh, are we are we including uh, Apocrypha, such as Two Noble Kinsmen and Double Falsehood? Nope. Okay. I don't like the Apocrypha. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have a podcast about Apocrypha. All right, well, if I'm going to do Valentine, I need to do um, Proteus. Proteus comes in at number two. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, there is one character that has a higher romance rating than Proteus. There is one who has a higher romance rating than Proteus. What were the words again that you used to, to determine this? So the, the romance words are love, kiss, and beauty. Love, kiss, and beauty. Um, Lucentio, Taming of the Shrew? You know, I did not choose to search Lucentio, and I, I, I consciously thought about it, but he is not on this list. Okay. And while you're guessing, I can perform this search for Lucentio as well. Okay, just for just for fun. I'm going to start counting down. Love, kiss, and beauty. Yep. Love, kiss, and beauty. Beauty, love, Five, and kiss. Love, four, kiss, and three, I, I want to say that something strange like two, like Iago might have shown up, but I doubt it. Well, it can't be Iago because I didn't search yet. I only you searched only searched the romances. Lovers. Yes, Just, I thought about doing like Macbeth or something as like a control. Sure, but I did not. All right, okay. Um, let's. Uh, where did Orlando li uh, land on the list? Uh, so Orlando is actually not on the list. Orlando, I mean Orlando comes in at number nine, so he's not in the top five. Okay. So that is one strike. Okay. Oh, man. I'm losing my streak. Um, <laughs> that might be the first question you've ever gotten wrong on this podcast. Oh, oh, I'm fired. All right. Give me one more. Lysander. Lysander comes in at number three. <gasps> oh, all right. Well, then who is number one? Number one is Sylvius from As You Like It. Oh! 
I thought about excluding him because of the small he's, sample size. Yeah, but... Um, oh, Silvius, that's he, so sweet. He's the only one on this list with less than a thousand words in his play, but 12 of them are love. So he got a romance rating of 19.64. So that's 19.64 romance words per thousand words. Okay. Proteus is 19.07. Lysander comes in at 18.04, Romeo 14.33, Valentine 12.52. Then rounding out the list, we have Demetrius with 11.63 romance words per thousand, Claudio from Much Ado About Nothing with 10.18, and then I have Troilus with 6.15, Orlando with four exactly, uh, and Ferdinand from The Tempest with 2.63, and then I, I don't even know why I'm including this in the conversation, but Sebastian from Twelfth Night actually only says the word love once. Ouch! He, he has 1,096 words. Wow. So he came, he is the only person on this list that came in under one with 0.91. So talk to me a little bit about this. Would this be what we would have expected to see? Um, I'm really shocked that Romeo came in so low on the list. And, um, I mean... I think I would be curious I would be curious to see what happened if we broadened the criteria for romance because I think that love, beauty and kiss I I I have I take no issue with those words. I think that there are there are more um that would work. There are uh there are embrace, there are adore, mm. there there are. There is embrace, there is adore. I I thought about searching heart as well, but mm -hmm. there were too many things that talked about like blood steaming from your heart yeah or like being using the heart as being weak of conscience or having no courage sure sure yeah i suppose that the words that you picked are the ones that could be most that would have the most singular definitions mm -hmm. and and just as a, as a little add-on fact i did search all words that it, that use the word love so beloved mm -hmm. appears in this list mm -hmm. lover all these hyphenated words like after love and mm -hmm. yeah but what you said about Sebastian falling so low on the list is just bringing me back to what we discussed last week when we were when we were playing a tyrant producer. Uh, in case you haven't listened to last week's podcast, The Ingenue Heroin Spectrum, you should. It's lovely and wonderful. <laughs> and uh, at the end, we played a game called Tyrant Producer where Kyle asked me to hypothesize a production of Twelfth Night in which three of the characters have anxiety disorders. And we figured out that Sebastian has this fear of commitment kind of endemic to his character um and thinking of how unromantic he is just like it just makes my heart break so much harder for antonio which it always does but i just i just feel like i feel like antonio needs to be in a different play where antonio antonio needs the sassy friend who's going to tell him to, that he deserves more he deserves more than sebastian who just uses him and runs off and Marries the first countess to throw herself at him. I did um, check Lucentio's romance rating, by the way. It is 5.03, which would put him just between Troilus and Orlando at the new number nine. Okay. Eight and a half. Um, okay. That's still lower than I thought it would be, because, like, Lucentio is so blown over by Bianca the moment he sees her. You know what, but what's interesting, and I wonder if this is the reason, he's also very shy. You know, so Is it would he? make sense that, I mean, it seems like it doesn't seem like he would talk about his love for her that much. And plus, he, he's also more calculating. 
he is very calculating. That's true. And yeah, I guess shy is one way to explain a guy who has his servant poses himself and then dresses up as a schoolmaster to infiltrate another man's house in order to woo his daughter. Um, that feels very... This is a podcast for another for another time. Can cunning and shy be contained in the same person? Mm, we mm. should find that out someday. Yeah. So the next segment on today's podcast is the trivia game, which I love playing every week, and Abby has informed me that she also really, really likes this part of the podcast. And I just think it's very fun, because it has no reflection on anybody's skills or knowledge, necessarily just their useless Shakespeare trivia. I don't find my Shakespeare trivia useless at all. For instance, it's very handy in winning this game. There we go. And I give her giant cash rewards based on how many points she gets. He does. I'm hoping um, to win a microwave this week. So if you want to follow along at home or in your car or wherever you're listening to this podcast, um, we will leave a small space between the question and Abby's answer, just so you have time to pause the podcast, see if you can answer the question yourself, and then resume and listen to the rest of this wonderful podcast. And the game is called How Now, What News? Now, in Shakespeare's plays, in 23 of Shakespeare's plays, there is at least one messenger, titled simply Messenger. That's the character's name. And I am going to read Abby a line said by one of these messengers, and she will have to guess which play's messenger that is. So, to give like a very brief example, if I were to say to Abby, Messenger, my lord, Prince Pericles is fled. I'm going to say Pericles, Kyle. Exactly. And that is how the game works. And I saved that because that's just the most ridiculous one. Um, I gave Abby a list of the 23 plays that have messengers. I will only be asking about 10 or 11 questions, depending on how fast we go. Um, so the first one is, Gracious my lord, I should report that which I say I saw, but know not how to do it. That is Macbeth. That is Macbeth. All right, one point. Yay. Number two. My lord, your brother John is ta'en in flight and brought with armed men back to Messina. That's much ado about nothing. That is much ado about nothing. Wow. All right. So, number three. Sailors, my lord, they say. I saw them not. They were given me by Claudio. He received them of him that brought them. Is that measure for measure? Nope. That is Hamlet. Which is Claudio. Because yeah. there's because Claudio never appears. There's I was thinking of the only other play I know that has a Claudio in it is measure mm. for measure. Measure for measure and much do by nothing, but oh, this man. is Hamlet. This wasn't this one was a little tricky. That's I hang I my head. I hang my head in shame. <laughs> so number four. My Lord High Constable, the English lie within 1,500 paces of your tents. I, I'm going to guess uh, Henry IV, Part Two. No, it's Henry V. Oh. One Henry away. So close. Too many Henrys. <laughs> yeah, there are, and I cut a lot of the Henrys out of here. That's a hint. Um, so the next one. The Ottomites, reverend and gracious, steering with due course towards the Isle of Rhodes, have there enjointed them with an after fleet. Is that Timon of Athens? Nope. Is it is... Antony and Cleopatra? It is not. It okay. is Othello. 
Automites. Wow. wow. Yep. The next. The Count Maloon is slain. The English lords, by his persuasion, are again fallen off, and your supply, which you have wished so long, are cast away and sunk on Goodwin Sands. Is it King John? Yes, it is oh. King John. Oh, finally. I can, <laughs> I can go home. The next. Prepare, you generals. The enemy comes in on gallant show. Their bloody sign of battle is hung out and something to be done immediately. Is that a Henry? Is that one of the Henry Sixes? It is not. Is it a Henry? It is not a Henry. Okay. It is Julius Caesar. Really? Really. Really? The next one on this list. Here are the heads of thy two noble sons, and here's thy hand in scorn to thee sent back. Thy griefs, their sports, thy resolution mocked, that woe is me to think upon thy woes more than remembrance of my father's death. That is Titus Andronicus. That is Titus Andronicus, <laughs> and boy is that gory and gruesome. Titus Andronicus? No. Next. And he that sends you word he dreamt tonight the boar had raised his helm. Besides, here says there are two councils held, and that may be determined at the one which may which may make you and him to rue at the other. Richard the Third. That is correct. Alright. And the last one. Your honor's players, hearing your amendment, are come to play a pleasant comedy, for so your doctors hold it very meet, seeing too much sadness sadness hath congealed your blood, and melancholy is the nurse of frenzy. How interesting. Mm-hmm. Is it Coriolanus? It is not. It is Taming of the Shrew. No. Oh, it's the uh, induction! Yep. Where I had... Good. Oh, the induction, of course. So, you got a certain number of points, which I did not keep track of, but... I think we're all agreed I got less than half the available points. <laughs> uh, five or six, probably, out of 11. That's not bad. Yeah, this is a tough game, actually. But a lot of fun, and I hope that the listeners listening along uh, at home had a great time racking their brains over this ridiculously difficult game. Um, the next segment uh, of today's podcast is called Tyrant Producer. Yay! For those of you who do not know what Tyrant Producer is, the parameters of this exercise are... Tyrant Producer has given you $3 million as payment for directing his production of a Shakespeare play, right? And you, as a director, have to make this production the best and be able to put your name on it confidently to be seen by many, many, many people. But there is one catch, and that is Tyrant Producer has a crazy idea, and you have to incorporate that theme into his play. And today's crazy idea is that Tyrant Producer wants to set Macbeth in the Old West. What do you do? Go. I don't think that's all that crazy. And I say that I should also inform you that my first Shakespeare play was Taming of the Shrew, set in the Old West. Ooh. So I, I think that it's not only outside the realm of possibility that someone would and could stage Macbeth in the Old West, I think it's actually quite doable. Um, first of all, you have a lawless, you, you have a, a famously lawless time. Uh, you could have... You you have uh, you have small isolated towns without uh, without much recourse to a higher power that are ruled by um, by that are ruled by money and power and you have 
you have outlaws and you have uh, lawmen. I would, and it also does away with that whole problem of uh, primogeniture. Like the the question mm-hmm. that people ask about uh, about Macbeth is, well, how can Macbeth become king if he's not related to Duncan? Which is because that's not how Scotland works. But you don't worry about that if Duncan is the sheriff of this old west town, and uh, Macbeth kills him and. In, in, in prime spaghetti western fashion kills him, <laughs> takes the sheriff's star and puts it on his hat. So so yes, that's my that's my first parameter. He's no longer the king of Scotland. He's, right, the, he's sheriff, the sheriff of the town. The which, sheriff of the town. Yep. Which you could call Scotland or you could let you could call it he could be the sheriff of Waco. Let's call him the sheriff of Waco. Sure. Waco, right. Texas. Waco, Texas. Um let's see, what would I do next? Well, so let's talk about the witches then. Yeah. What do we do with the witches in the Old West? Like, like you know, drunk bar flies in a saloon? Maybe just adding some level of... Because you have to make them mysterious somehow. And I think adding a drunken element to them sort of makes their speech a little more like... You, you can't give full credit to it, but if they're saying weird stuff, like it sort of piques your interest... I like that a lot. One of the things I like about that is that I feel like the obvious trap in setting this in the Old West is, um, you know, if, if, if a Western had been made of this about 50 years ago, they would have turned the witches into Native American stereotypes. Oh, boy. Which none of us want to see. I hadn't even thought about that. That's actually, like, I mean, not, not necessarily uh, culturally respectful, but exactly. would be a really, really good way to do that in a production. I, I think it would be the easiest, the easiest shorthand. But again, because it would be so difficult to do with sensitivity and accuracy, mm-hmm. and it like contributes to the mysticizing and uh, othering of Native American culture. I don't know if it's the best way to go. What I like about having them be drunken barflies is that you add the element that these people exist for everybody, but their prophecy only exists for Macbeth and Banquo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you add like a, a character, like a, a, a um, you add a flavor that the prophecy happens because Macbeth wants it to be prophecy. Yeah, it's easy. It, it, it's it's easy to believe things that magical witches tell you, but for it to be three barflies called me by names that aren't mine and then the name started to come true yeah. clearly they must be like divinely inspired you add an ele- you add an element of doubt to Macbeth's character that he didn't have before so then um the fight scenes just like old st- I mean obviously we can't just have a gun duel because then you know very we, short fight yeah. scenes and I mean certainly there there is a, a value to that in say like killing off Banquo and and Flee and getting away on like a horse or, or whatever crazy, but like when it comes down to the final fight scene between Macbeth and Macduff, like, oh. and again I could see Macbeth just like shooting down Young Seward too. Like Young Seward's like I'm gonna fight you, and Macbeth just like takes out his gun and he goes bam. Just Indiana Jones is him, yeah. But absolutely. then like maybe his gun's out of bullets for for the Macduff fight, and Macduff wants to you know you know that just gets this gritty hand to hand use of ropes and lassos and. Um, water troughs actually um my one of my scene partners in graduate school and i did this that final fight as a um old western style 
like western film fight and it was so cool yeah it was a lot of fun especially because with our big tyrant producer budget we could do something crazy like having the fight start inside of a saloon so you have broken chairs and broken bottles and you have the piano player who keeps playing even though the world's coming down around his ears (laughs) and then it travels outside through those double doors into the street where you have bull whips and you have lassos and you have troughs and ah you could finish it with a the finishing move would be the lasso going over a rafter and hanging Macbeth instead yep. of beheading him no oh, you goodness. would hang yep. him in the middle of town yep well there we go so uh not not all that far-fetched of an idea after all I guess um but it, you know it was interesting to discuss as always <laughs> the uh the next segment that uh I wanted to open up is actually uh listener questions Ooh. we actually have some listener questions today uh, and a couple of them were really, really... In- I mean, they're all great, and I, I wanted to talk about them. Um, Deidre Brill on Twitter, at Dread Pirate Mama. I love your name, yeah. Deidre Brill. Deidre Brill, at Dread Pirate Mama, asks, Can modern audiences enjoy Troilus and Cressida? What makes it still relevant and or enjoyable? And, you know, I, I sort of struggled with this at first, because, I mean, this not only goes... It doesn't just go back to Shakespeare's time. This goes all the way back to the Iliad. But mm-hmm. I think a lot of the themes that are present um, in Troilus and Cressida still apply today, like war over something that seems stupid to go to war over, mm-hmm. or um, you know, a love story that's torn apart by lack of faithfulness. Absolutely, but I think the the I mean the main problem for me at the center of Troilus and Cressida is that Cressida's character is so inconsistent. Um, Cressida is, mythologically speaking, Cressida is is famously painted as having been false to her lover. And what happens in Troilus and Cressida, she and Troilus fall in love. She promises she'll be forever true to him. Then she's exchanged as a hostage to uh, the Greek camp and very quickly takes up with another guy. And she, the character, is not written to have any chance to explain to us why she's taken up with this other guy. Here's the thing. The scene where we see this happen, we have Troilus watching her from afar while she's hanging out with Diomedes, and Diomedes is trying to get her to give him uh, a favor that was given to her by Troilus. I forget just now what it was, but a handkerchief, a glove, a bracelet, something small that belonged to Troilus that was supposed to be the signifier that they were bound together forever. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't do it right away. She agonizes over it. I think... I think that uh, the way that you can justify this production is that, A, there's this, this, this emptiness, this cipher at the center of Cressida that could eas- so easily be filled in a textually justified manner that she needs safety. There's a, there's a, when she enters the Greek camp after the hostage exchange, all of the Greek leaders in sequence are kiss her. That's the only stage direction we get. And you mm. can make that as creepy and strange and physically violating as possible to to justify to, to justify her decision that betraying Troilus and taking up with Diomedes is preferable to being ideologically true to Troilus and being raped by every leader in the Greek camp. Mm-hmm. The message then becomes that that war takes a lot of things away from us. Well, and you know, I think that's a good another good reason that this play is still relevant and enjoyable like the toll war takes on both sides is is a very applicable theme to to the recent wars in in iraq and afghanistan and, and all of that and i mean if you want to get real political 
I mean, the, this this war in the Iliad basically takes place over Helen, right? Mm -hmm. Helen is the face that sunk a thousand ships, or sailed a thousand ships, rather. The face that sailed a thousand ships. And these two sides both want Helen, the, the most beautiful woman that has ever been on this earth. And so they go to war over her and cause, you know, hundreds and thousands of people to die. Mm -hmm. Well... There, there is a political view, a political stance out there that there was more to the Iraq war than just government, that, that a lot of it had to do with oil, right? And I won't comment on that because I don't want to get all, all in politics, but going to war over oil is equally, it, it seems, I mean, it, it, there is a financial interest in the country, for the country to do such a thing, but it also is something very simple that perhaps if you look at it from a larger picture thousands of people shouldn't be dying over in other words an examination of the true causes of war and how it's always a much more complex issue than the one MacGuffin that we blame it on yep exactly yeah. so i think that's another way that this play is still relevant today so um you know young love falling apart due to disloyalty whatever the motivation may be and the the theme of war and its toll and then all the stuff we just mentioned i think that's what makes this play still enjoyable and, and relevant today i actually my collaborative studies project in undergrad was troilus and cressida and we set it in the, the sierra leone civil war hmm. um yeah and we had um like ajax and uh, what's that is that the that's the greek side is that the the I oh, you're thinking of side. ajax and achilles are yeah. greeks yep yeah and so we had the greeks as the the young you know, 13-year-old child soldiers that were being, you know, hopped up on cocaine and going into the villages and destroying everything. And Helen was, like, the concept for Helen was a blood diamond. And so it was a comment on the blood diamonds in the Sierra Leone mm -hmm. Civil War, which, mm -hmm. you know, that's only almost 30 years ago now that that started. What's so. interesting to me about that is that I often think of the, the Iliad and all of the stories that sprung from it, all of the stories that sprung from the Trojan War as the origin of slut-shaming. <laughs> because the thing is, is that nobody speaks well of Helen in any of these stories, especially the ones that are meant to happen after the war or after the war has been going on for a long time. Historically, it was a 10 years war. Um, Helen didn't really do anything. She's She's an object that is passed around and for which a war is fought and both sides, the foot soldiers on both sides, anyone who is not Menelaus or Paris spends all of their time talking about what a whore she is and how it's all her fault that we're dying. Mm -hmm. So the, the transmutation of her into an actual beautiful object that, that only has value because we assign it yep. to it is exactly. a really interesting take. Okay. Um, Next question from uh, Carissa Mata through Facebook. Uh, she asks, feminism in Shakespeare, before his time, strong female roles. Um, I think we, we talked a little bit about uh, some of the heroines last week, and this mm -hmm. could certainly apply to, to Rosalind very, very easily. I think that's one of the, the greater female characters in his canon. Mm -hmm. um, what else would you add? I would add, especially after our discussion last week, that uh, Helena in All's Well That Ends Well is perhaps his most feminist character because I think because she's so active, she's so she's she's so uh, single-minded in pursuit of what she wants, and she does it without having to resort to putting on men's clothing. Sure. Um, that said, what she does is pursue pursue marriage with somebody 
with somebody with whom it is ill-advised and you could make your arguments about whether or not that, um, that is truly feminist yeah in yeah. fact i actually took issue with the realization that all of shakespeare's heroines are in love plots he doesn't have any war heroines mm. he doesn't have uh the the closest the closest he has is margaret in the early history plays but sure. it, taken in like the whole arc of her character it's it she's not a heroine what about um paulina winter's tale is Paulina... Paulina is a strong female character. She definitely, like, goes up to a king, lets him definitely. have it, and sticks up for sticks up for Hermione. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's women standing up for women. And Amelia in Othello is, can be taken that way, too. In fact, sure. yeah. Amelia's entire arc is fascinating to me because she not only has that wonderful speech to Desdemona about sexual liberation, but when she finds out what Iago has been doing... She gets stabbed in the belly for it and still continues telling everybody what he has done. Like, she is... Yeah. She's she's a badass. Um, Constance? Lady Constance in uh, King John? I don't maybe? know King John well well enough, I think, to thoroughly comment on that. Okay, neither do I, actually. So let's skip over that one. Forget about that. <laughs> um, there was one more I had in, in mind that it was, uh, it was from a history play. I will say that I think that the women are standardly are, are in general underutilized and uh, underempowered in the history plays. Which, on the one hand, on the one hand, there are certain constraints due to the fact that women did not go to war. Um, mm -hmm. But on the other hand, they're so often simply there to uh, to to add a shade of humanity to the male protagonists, or they are there to comment on the cost of all of these murders. Those scenes in Richard III between the Duchess of York and Queen Elizabeth and Margaret, where they're all sitting around doing nothing more but crying over all of the people who are dying. Um, they, they're passive observers in the history plays, mm -hmm. often, I think. I think Shakespeare could have done a little bit better you know, there's there's the, there's sort of a demeanor though of Lady Percy, for example, that that sort of gives mm -hmm. us gives a strong feminine presence, and then Lady Macbeth that we haven't mentioned yet, who no. uses her feminine wiles in a very powerful and manipulative way. Which is not to say that she's a good person, but that is in there is an awesome argument for feminism that feminism means being able to do what you want and if that means like stripping can be a feminine a mm -hmm. feminist act um because it is powerful and a woman using her assets in the way that she wants to use them in order to have some sort of power over people and the lady macbeth she's not a stripper obviously that's this terrible comparison and that's not what i'm saying but, but she... supporting her husband is a feminist act if that's what truly fulfills yes, her exactly what she wants to do. yep um Craig Rosenthal asks, can you compare The Lion King to Hamlet? And I'm going to make this one pretty short because we're, we're running out of time. Um, th this is a comp that obviously is underlying. Um, a lot of people, every, many people know that The Lion King is loosely, loosely based off of Hamlet. My, the, the key difference is, obviously, is that Simba does not die in the end, mm -hmm. right? There is really no Laertes unless you look at the hyenas as Laertes. There's no, no Polonius that gets, like, stabbed through a curtain. Um, Nala is a much is a much happier lady than Ophelia ever was. Yes. and turns out better. Does not drown herself. There's, there's much, much less death in The Lion King than there is in Hamlet. I mean, Scar and... Who is basically Claudius, and uh, Mufasa, who is basically King Hamlet, 
both die. That's another element is that Kay, that Claudius is, or King Hamlet is dead before the show opens. Mm-hmm. Whereas we see the character of Mufasa develop a little bit throughout the beginning of The Lion King. And then we see him die traumatically. Yes. Um, um, so I would say that the major difference is that The Lion King is Hamlet with almost all of the negatives turned to positives. So yeah. There's no laerties. The The Ophelia relationship is much more fulfilling. The Rosencrantz and Guildenstern yep. relationship is much more fulfilling. Gertrude, the Gertrude relationship, what little we see of it, is much it's more much more positive. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, I have another question from Twitter. David Bates, at David B. Writer, asks, Do you think anyone will ever find a treasure trove of personal documents, letters, memoir, etc., written by William Shakespeare? I think it's unlikely that there's stuff that's left to be discovered, but we're learning, like, even in recent years, people have discovered, you know, cannabis in Shakespeare's house and whatever. Mm-hmm. I think it's possible. I would. What would you put the percentage chance at? That a well, giant, wonderful treasure trove of personal documents from, from Shakespeare emerges suddenly? I, I'm, I hate to be this guy, but it depends on your definition of treasure trove. You know, like, for me, honestly, a treasure trove would just be one more play. He's credited. There's some. There's there's some like program that we have from a night of Shakespeare's play where, plays where he's credited as having written the merry comedy of Robin Hood, and the fact that we don't have that, like whether uh, the fact that we don't have confirmation that he wrote it and we don't have a copy of it, just breaks my heart. Um, I think that in fact, I think that there is a very high percentage. I would say that there's in the seventies that we might find one more Shakespeare play, but in terms mm. of like in terms of a box full of uh, drafts, like early drafts of Romeo and Juliet, where the characters have different names, and letters to his wife, where we find out that he was faithful to her the whole time, and like letters to William Herbert, where we find out whether or not they were carrying on a love affair, which I, I'm I'm willing to bet that they totally were. Um, I don't think that it's very likely. Cool. All right. Good. All right. Great. Well, we have come to the end of the podcast today. Um, Abby, would you like to tell the listeners how they can get in touch with you on social media? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Abby Wild and on the World Wide Web at abbywild.com. Check out the classes and coaching tab on my website and you'll find out about the class that I'm teaching in June for young performers. I would love to have you. Kyle? Uh, as for myself, my name's Kyle Downing. I'm a Shakespeare coach in New York City. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram as at NYShakesGuy. You can find me on Facebook as NYShakesGuy. Uh, you can find me on YouTube, Kyle Downing, NYShakesGuy. A bunch of pretty cool videos about Shakespeare, mostly monologues, some technique. Um, and if you're interested in a coaching session, you can send me an email at NYShakesGuy at gmail.com. Don't forget to check out my website, www.kyledowning.com slash nyshakesguy.html. And you can also rate and review this podcast on iTunes. Uh, Just open up your podcast app, search Pith and Moment, and hit the subscribe button. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. For Abby Wild, I'm Kyle Downing. Keep up the hard work on your bard work.